Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to History of Europe, Kibato's podcast. This is the second and final part on the Battle of Königgrätz of In previous episodes of the podcast, I have talked about the background to the Battle of Königgrätz. The rise of Prussia as a great power, the challenges faced by the Austrian Empire, and then about the Schleswig War of 1864, when both these German powers worked together to defeat Denmark, but then fell out with each other, leading to the outbreak of hostilities in 1866. Of the two armies who were to meet at Königgrätz on the 3rd of July 1866, the Austrians and Prussians, it was the former, the Austrians, who possessed the finer reputation. The Austrian army were known for the steadiness of their white-coated infantry, the dashing Hungarian cavalry and the light infantry troops known as the Jäger, used in skirmishes and as scouts. The memories of General Radetzky's exploits in Italy in 1849 were still bright enough to cast a romantic glow upon the force that he had led. Austria's defeat at the hands of the French and Italians had not dispelled this, for her troops had fought well and her officers had distinguished themselves by their gallantry and initiative, for example at the battles of Solferino and Magenta. Although the battle for Solferino was a defeat, it was a personal triumph for the Austrian commander Ludwig von Benedek. Under his command, the right wing broke the enemy attack and might have swept the field were it not for failings in the centre and left flank. Benedek's name appeared regularly in the columns of the newspapers of Vienna, usually with flattering descriptions, and he was adored by his troops for his personal bravery and for his generosity 
to old soldiers in financial difficulty. Benedek was appointed as chief commander in the war against Prussia, although he was personally reluctant. 62 years of age, he had been suffering from periods of ill health and tried to decline the post, and yielded only when the emperor appealed to his sense of duty. The Austrian infantry had recently enhanced their reputation with victories in Denmark. However, these successes hid various deficiencies. The empire's financial difficulties meant that the reserve army was not nearly as big as it should have been. Additionally, there were problems of communication in an army where men were drawn from all the provinces of a multinational empire and in many cases had trouble speaking and understanding German. Because of inefficiencies in the call-up procedures, it took the Austrian army seven weeks to mobilise its forces and were able to raise an effective fighting force of some 320,000 men. And of these, about 100,000 were assigned to Italy. The Austrian artillery had acquitted itself well in recent campaigns and had been further developed since the war in Denmark converting from smoothbore to rifled cannon. The rifling or grooves inside the barrel would spin the shell as it fired, stabilising it and so making it more accurate. The infantry, however, were not so well equipped. Line regiments were armed with a rifled muzzle loader, where ammunition was loaded via the front, which was accurate up to about 400 paces, but not further. It was inferior to the Prussian breech-loading rifle, where ammunition was loaded via the back, was more accurate and could be loaded more rapidly. The rifle chosen by the Prussians was known as a needle gun, which was then widely known but not yet adopted by most military establishments. It was believed to be unreliable, but the Prussians overcame early problems with rigorous testing a modifying of the original prototype. At the same time, the Prussian troops received extensive training on how to best use the weapon. The Austrians were supported by the German Confederation, which had an army of some 150,000 men. However, it was not an effective fighting force, since they had never trained together and did not possess a unified command structure. Also, political divisions made swift and concerted action virtually impossible and ended in a failure to take the initiative against the Prussians. The only truly effective contribution came from the Saxons, who abandoned their home territory in order to fight alongside the Austrians in Bohemia. The chief author of the Prussian campaign was the chief of the general staff, Helmut von Moltke, who was born in 1800 and grew up in Holstein. He was an intellectual who had published a novel and translated Edward Gibbon's classic book The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire into German, or at least most of it. He was fascinated by the use of railways in battle and believed in swift and decisive aggression as the best way to win a war. He broke up the massed Prussian infantry units into smaller, more mobile units, leaving much to the initiative of their individual commanders. The objective was to mesh 
the converging units only at the last minute in order to deliver the decisive blow. The risk of this tactic, if not carried out precisely, was the possibility of the enemy attacking each unit individually with a superior force before they were able to unite. The advantage of the approach was that it reduced the logistical strain of a large army finding itself clogged up on narrow country roads or on one-track railways. And the increased speed and manoeuvrability meant that the Prussians, rather than the enemies, would be able to determine the timing and setting of any encounter. Such tactics would have been impossible without the recent innovation of the telegraph to help communication and also of improved roads and railways. By contrast, Austrian military doctrine gave greater emphasis to a defensive strategy based on military strongpoints and fortresses, and they were more cautious about overextending in an offensive manoeuvre. The two sides were divided by a mountain range called the Sudetes, which stretches from the Saxon capital of Dresden eastwards across the northern frontier of Bohemia to Silesia, around the border today of Poland and the Czech Republic. To the south, the land falls away in great hills and ridges, steeply ascending foothills, alternating with deeply cut river valleys. The population of the region was at the time mixed, Czechs and Germans in proportion of about three to two. Each side in the war felt sure of the intention of the other. The Prussians suspected the Austrians would march to Bohemia, but instead received news that their enemy was massing its forces further to the east in the city of Olomouc, or Olmwetz, the capital of Moravia, for potentially a blow against the Silesian capital of Breslau. The Austrian commander, Benedek, was advised by his lieutenant colonel, von Beck, to move westwards as quickly as possible to link up with his German allies in northern Bohemia and then to make a joint attack on Berlin, the capital of Prussia. An energetic drive northwards might, he felt, encourage the South German governments to get more involved. Benedek, however, was reluctant to move from Olomouc, which, according to Gordon Craig in his book on the Battle of Königgrätz, was the first in a series of missed opportunities. Quote, While the Prussian army was confined to its own territory, and Moltke was shifting forces to guard against an invasion of Silesia that was never contemplated by his enemy, the beginnings of an Austro-German concentration might have been made in Bohemia, and the shape of the war to come might have been very different. End quote. The Prussians first invaded Saxony, and occupied the capital Dresden with little difficulty. The Saxon army, 32,000 strong and led by Crown Prince Albert, a well-respected military commander, fell backwards towards the Bohemian frontier, which it reached on June the 18th, and then headed to join the Austrians. As for the other northern German states, the Elector of Hesse had no time to mobilise his forces, and a single Prussian division overran the country and ended resistance within three days. The Kingdom of Hanover proved to be more difficult, but was also subdued by June the 29th. 
The Prussians were thus able to clear all of northern Germany and to prevent nearly all of Austria's German allies from joining the Habsburg army. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Back in the Austrian camp, Benedek, realising he was in danger of being outnumbered by the Prussians, decided eventually to break out of Onamuk and to head west to join the Saxons. On June the 18th, his troops headed to the fortress of Josefstadt near Königgratz on the upper reaches of the River Elbe, around 115 kilometres or 70 miles east of Prague. The Prussian army was divided into three main parts. In the east, the army of the Elbe. In the centre, the first army led by Prince Frederick Card of Prussia. And in the west, in Silesia, the second army under Crown Prince Frederick. The plan was to converge around the town of Gritschen to the northwest of Königgratz. A number of significant smaller battles occurred before the main battle of Königgratz. The first encounters were light skirmishes between the advance guard of the Prussian First Army and Austrian cavalry divisions. But some of the first heavy casualties occurred on the 20th of June at the Battle of Padol, a picturesque little village with a single street which witnessed particularly savage fighting between the two sides. The advancing Austrians cleared the village and attacked the Prussians, but were driven back by heavy gunfire. This was the first real demonstration of the potency of the Prussian needle gun. When the Austrians launched a bayonet charge, the Prussians deployed their forward platoons and began firing rapidly into the mass of the approaching enemy. Within a short time, of the 3,000 Austrians engaged in the battle, nearly 500 were shot. Prussian casualties were only about 130. On the previous day, an encounter between units of the Prussian Second Army and the Austrians at the Plateau of Nachod produced similarly unbalanced casualty figures. Over one-fifth of the Austrians were either killed or wounded. 5,700 Austrians 
compared to 1,200 Prussians. On the same day, nearby at the village of Trattenau, the Austrians prevailed in a separate encounter. They made good use of artillery, capturing the Prussians on the back foot and forcing them to withdraw, but even then they suffered terrible casualties. 4,800 to the Prussians, 1,300. News of the victory at Nahod was telegraphed to Berlin and put an end to a general lack of enthusiasm for the war among the public. For the first time, Bismarck was popular and found cheering crowds wherever he went. King Wilhelm's early affairs about his subjects' reaction to the war were laid to rest as happy crowds came to the palace to give messages of support. The battle, however, was by no means decided. Benedek had an opportunity to act decisively against the Prussian forces, who had been pushed back at Trattenau and left in an exposed position. Yet the Austrian general did not appear to have the confidence in his army to react to changes in plans quickly, and so prevaricated. For certain, the Austrians suffered from lack of coordination between the different units, which helped contribute to a further setback on the 28th of June of the Battle of Skaritz, south of Trattenau. The Austrians suffered again similar casualties as before. Five and a half thousand to the Prussians, 1,300. There was still hope for the Austrians, whose main army was now able to link up with the Saxons. The key was to take advantage of the geographic division of the enemy by holding up the Prussian Second Army in the east for long enough to permit a decisive strike against the First Army. Benedict realised the problems his troops were facing against the needle guns and issued an order that his infantry should only go forward after the artillery had been used first to open the way. Lack of coordination among the Austrian commanders again caused problems on the 29th of June. Crown Prince Albert of Saxony arrived in the town of Glitchen on the 29th of June. The latest information he received from Benedict was that the main Austrian northern army would reach Glitchen on the following day, so he assumed, understandably, that his role was to hold the town and that he would receive support. He telegraphed to ask for new orders to confirm but received none. After the Battle of Skalitz, however, Benedek had decided to halt the move to Glitchen. So when the Prussians arrived, the Saxons, without the expected support, found themselves greatly outnumbered. Considering their predicament, they fought well and bravely, but nevertheless suffered great casualties. Some 4,700 to the Prussians, 1,500. This defeat at Glitchen profoundly affected General Benedict, who feared he was becoming trapped in a remorselessly closing ring of steel. He dispatched a wire to the Emperor, urging him to make peace at any price. Franz Josef replied, quote, To conclude peace is impossible. I order you, if it is unavoidable, to begin a retreat. Has a battle taken place? End quote. It was later discovered that the last sentence was added by a staff officer named Crenneville.
to query why a retreat should occur without losing a battle. Benedict appeared to interpret the instructions to mean to fight a major battle before considering retreating. He also possibly saw that a retreat at this point would not be easy and that the losses in a running fight with the Prussians would exceed those in the battle on ground he chose himself. The ground he chose was a chain of hills some eight miles northwest of Kunigratz, where the main battle then occurred. He was later much criticised for deploying his forces in front of the River Elbe, rather than behind it. The Battle of Kunigratz proper began on the 3rd of July, 1866. The Austrians had a small numerical advantage, with some 238,000 men, compared with the Prussians' 220,000, including their 1st and 2nd Army and the Army of the Elbe, who had advanced from the north. Much of the main front of the war was along a small stream called the Bisritz, which flows in a southwesterly direction, parallel to the upper course of the River Elbe. Along its eastern bank, the land rises in undulating slopes to a chain of hills, of which the largest were called the Lippe and Chlum. At the foot of the hills were a number of villages, including Sadova, and these were separated by thick woods, the largest of which were the Hollowvoud and Sweepvoud. General Benedict prepared the ground by moving artillery and main forces to the hills, laying out an elaborate system of trenches and fieldworks, and cutting down trees and using them to build lines of defence. He also measured and marked out the ranges for his artillery. He increased the number of pontoon buildings across the River Elbe in case of the need to retreat. But, writes Gordon Craig, he had no intention of fighting a purely defensive battle. Quote, the very size of his reserves showed that he was hoping to do what Archduke Albrecht had done so successfully eight days before at Costosa in Italy, to wear down the enemy by a defensive battle from a favourable position, meanwhile keeping the reserves intact, and then at the crucial moment to break his centre. End quote. The battle began at dawn on the 3rd of July as the Prussians began their advance in light rain and mist. The exact whereabouts of Prussia's 2nd Army in the east was not clear, nor if they would be able to join the battle that day. The Austrian artillery opened fire, pinning down the Prussian right flank. The Saxons on the Austrian left fell back in good order and proceeded to rain down fire on the advancing Prussian right from higher ground, forcing the enemy back. Meanwhile, at the centre, the rain and mist obscured the targets of the Prussians, to some extent countering the better accuracy of the needle guns. The Austrian Jäger units, with good cover, fired blindly at the sound of the advancing enemy and inflicted heavy losses on them. At the same time, Prussian artillery rained fire upon the village of Sadova on the river Bisritz, starting various fires. Two Prussian divisions converged on the village and forced the Austrians there to retreat, but then found themselves vulnerable to artillery fire from the surrounding hills. 
the Austrians made good use of the ranges they had earlier measured and caused significant casualties. As one Prussian soldier wrote later, quote, We looked for cover, but where was one to find it? In this kind of fire. The bombshells crashed through the clay walls as if through cardboard. We withdrew to the left into the woods, but it was no better there. Jagged hunks of wood and big tree splinters flew around our heads. One shrapnel shell exploded right in front of us. When shrapnel explodes in the air, it rattles down on the ground like hailstones, and in the sky a beautiful smoke ring rises, getting bigger all the time, until it disappears. We felt we were in God's hands. End quote. A little further east, a Prussian 7th Division advanced into the village of Benetech and then further into the Schwiebwald, a thick forest of firs and oaks, which was to experience exceptionally bloody fighting. The river Biswitz was easy to wade across for the Prussians, but transporting artillery across it was extremely difficult. They needed to cover their left flank until the Second Army, under the Crown Prince, arrived and moved forward under heavy fire, with both sides suffering heavy casualties. After a long morning's fight, the Austrian lines were still undented. Their guns had inflicted heavy losses on Frederick Charles's First Army. Their longer range meant that the outnumbered Prussians could neither advance against the artillery barrage nor effectively engage the Austrian infantry. The Prussian battalions were growing weaker and their right flank unable to advance against the Saxons. The Austrian centre began a manoeuvre to flank the Prussian 7th Division and force them back to the outskirts of the forest. Benedict's corps commanders pleaded with him to launch a decisive counter-attack to destroy the Prussian 1st and Elba armies before the 2nd Army arrived, but Benedict declined to do so, believing it was not yet time. A crucial moment came at 11.30 when a telegram arrived to the Austrian command with the news that the Prussian 2nd Army was making much more progress than expected and could be expected on the scene of battle soon. This was particularly a problem for the Austrian right flank was exposed to the arriving Prussian infantry, having moved from their defensive position to attack. At 2.30 in the afternoon, Crown Prince Frederick finally arrived with the main bulk of his almost 100,000 men, having marched with all possible haste all morning and hit the Austrian right flank, retiring from the Schriepwald forest. At the same time, on the Austrian left, the Saxons were being gradually forced back. They had fought valiantly since the beginning of the war, but suffered great casualties and were now in danger of being outflanked. They withdrew in good order and the Prussian right moved forward. The most intense fighting now occurred on the hillsides in the centre of the battleground. The Austrians were simply unable to cope with the gunfire, an advancing enemy from all sides, and were forced back from the high ground, a key moment in the battle, being the Prussian capture of the hill at Chlum. Gordon Craig writes that, whatever may be said of General Benedict's fateful procrastination, both in the lead-up to the battle and that morning, he now acted energetically and bravely, coordinating repeated attempts to push back against the advancing Prussians. 
He dashed from point to point within the shrinking area in which the Austrians had freedom of action, cajoling his troops to stand firm. However, the tide of the battle was now firmly in the Prussians' favour. Particularly with improved weather and visibility, they were able to make good use of the needle gun as they advanced. A series of final desperate cavalry charges by the Austrians was not enough to regain the initiative, but did succeed in holding up a Prussian pursuit as the Austrians retreated back across the River Elbe. General Benedek was able to extricate 180,000 of his troops, an achievement which mitigated to some extent some of the faults of his conduct on the campaign. Nevertheless, 44,000 of his men had been killed and more than 22,000 captured. The Prussians, meanwhile, had some 9,000 men killed, wounded or missing. The Austrians and their allies had no more forces to counter the Prussian army, who occupied Prague and began to advance on Vienna. His morale broken, Emperor Franz Josef sued for peace, and on the 26th of July, 1866, an armistice was signed at Prague, which brought the war to an end just seven weeks after it had started. King Wilhelm and his generals wanted to push on and to take the Austrian capital, before imposing harsh terms on the defeated Habsburgs. But Bismarck knew that this would only lead to fresh resistance from the Austrians and risk other great powers getting involved. He had achieved his main aim of the war. Emperor Franz Josef was spared any annexations but had to agree to the dissolution of the German Confederation and Austria's permanent exclusion from German affairs. Two months later, Venetia was ceded to France, who then gifted it to Italy. In Germany, Bismarck ousted the King of Hanover and turned his kingdom into a Prussian province, thus bridging the gaps between the two halves of the Prussian state. The Prussians also annexed other territories, notably Frankfurt, which was Germany's financial centre, and Schleswig-Holstein. Much of the rest of Germany, some 22 states in all, were forced into a new organisation, the North German Confederation, under the leadership of Berlin. The South German states retained their independence, but were compelled to sign secret military agreements which tied them ever closer to Prussia. For the first time ever in modern European history, most of Germany was now organised as a single power centre, with profound implications for the balance of power in Europe. Bismarck also prevailed over his domestic rivals. The news of the victory at Königgratz created a wave of patriotic enthusiasm and left the Liberal parliamentary bloc in an impossible position. They could no longer dispute the legitimacy and effectiveness of the military reforms. But instead of marginalising the Liberals, Bismarck worked with them and created a central bloc of moderate Liberals and Conservatives who played a crucial role in providing a stable platform for government in the North German Confederation as well as Berlin. After 1866, the Habsburg monarchy was thrown into a deep crisis and was never to regain its credibility as a great power of the first rank. Already there had been discussions with Hungary about a new political arrangement, 
and the defeat at Königgrätz brought matters to a head. Keen to secure the loyalty of the Hungarians, Emperor Franz Josef felt no longer able to resist demands to grant greater powers to their parliament. For their part, the Hungarians did not want to break up the monarchy, which provided protection against Russia. The result was the signing of a new law, known as the Ausgleich, or Compromise, which restructured the empire as a dual monarchy, divided into an Austrian and a Hungarian half, each with its own government, laws and administration. The deal reserved control over the armed forces and foreign policy and their finances to the central authority in Vienna, though each half of the monarchy had to be consulted on major actions such as the conclusion of international treaties. The Croatians concerned about a stitch-up between the two largest nationalities in the empire objected but were finally appeased by the concession of their language as an official language and generous provisions for the retention of tax revenues. Other nationalities, Slovaks, Serbs, Romanians and Italians, were given concessions on the use of their language in schools. But neither Austrians nor Hungarians were willing to grant equal rights and statuses to other nationalities in their half of the empire. Actually, the compromise satisfied nobody entirely. The Austrian public came to resent the influential role of the Hungarians, or Hungarian public opinion still considered their country to be oppressed because the nation was still not able to assert full sovereignty, independence and freedom of manoeuvre, and other nationalities felt it cheated by the arrangement. Yet the fact that these arrangements lasted for another half-century demonstrates that they were a reasonably effective solution to the problems of the Habsburg Empire. My name is Carl Rylett and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. The music today is from the composer Johann Brahms, his symphony number no. one and then his waltz number no. 15. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If so, why not give it a great review on iTunes or wherever you hear the podcast. I hope you can join me next time when I will talk about the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871. Until then, all the best and goodbye. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.